0: Chapter Three of the Posthumous Essays of John Churton Collins. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Posthumous Essays of John Churton Collins. Chapter Three Samuel Johnson, Part One not long ago i happened to be exploring an old bookshop and turning over some pamphlets i found written on the title-page of one of them the following epigram which so far as i know has not yet found its way into print a parson of too free a life was yet renowned for noble preaching and many grieved to see the strife between his practice and his teaching at last his flock rebellious grew my friends he said the simple fact is nor i nor you can both things do but i can preach and you can practice now i don't know how it is but i can't keep that anecdote from coming into my head when i read carlyle's lectures on hero worship you will remember that in his lecture on the hero as man of letters he does dr johnson the honor of giving him a place and after a due amount of italicized carlylees about the infinities the enormous facts of the universe glaring in ever wonderful and the like he proceeds to his sermon of that sermon i need say no more we have all heard it and have each been affected by it in our several ways most of us have probably quite as high an opinion of dr johnson's greatness as carlyle had and as carlyle to say the least of it was a little too fond was certainly unpleasantly fond of harping on our littleness our in italics our meanness our unveracities that he might exalt the stature of his hero by contrast Why should not the worm turn? Why should we not assume in self-defense the same license and render our tribute to Johnson the more adequate by contrasting him with his eulogist? Thanks to James Boswell, thanks to James Anthony Froude, the two men are laid bare to our inspection. We know them as if we had lived with them nay, infinitely better, for then we should have seen through a glass darkly, seen their mere doings, not understood their motives, heard their words, not read their thoughts, seen a part, not a whole. But now all is clear. I will not draw any contrasting parallel between them. You can do that for yourselves. It will not be difficult. It will suggest itself sotto voce, as we proceed to no man of whom biography holds record was life a heavier burden than it was to johnson he had inherited one of the most terrible of physical maladies and one of the most terrible of mental maladies a malady which in his own words made him mad all his life or at least not sober he told one of his friends that he had never lived one week in his life that he would live over again were an angel to make the proposal to him his whole life was an attempt to escape from himself what pathos there is in this one remark which he made to william gerard hamilton who had called on him and to whom he was accompanying to the door quote i am very unwilling to be left alone sir and therefore I go with my company down the first pair of stairs, in some hopes that they may, perhaps, return again. Footnote. Boswell's Life of Johnson. End footnote. His literary work was absolutely loathsome to him. He always worked against time and against the grain. He cared little for fame and very little for the applause of the world and yet though life was so sore a burden to him the fear of death was an agony on one occasion when boswell had got him to talk on it that thoughtless man with characteristic want of tact pressed the subject though johnson plainly wished to avoid it he was says boswell thrown into such a state of agitation that he expressed himself in a way that alarmed and distressed me Showed an impatience that I should leave him, and when I was going away, it called to me sternly, quote, "Don't let us meet tomorrow." End quote. Footnote: Boswell's Life of Johnson. End footnote. Few men have been more sincerely and essentially religious than Johnson, and yet few men appear to have found less comfort from religion, as Macaulay beautifully expresses it. The light from heaven shone on him indeed, but not in a direct line, or with its own pure splendor. The rays had to struggle through a disturbing medium. They reached him refracted, dulled, and discolored by the thick gloom which had settled on his soul, and though they might be sufficiently clear to guide him, were too dim to cheer him. Footnote. Essay on Samuel Johnson. End footnote. Only think then of the heroism this man displayed in accomplishing what he did, and in subduing himself to the conditions of his life, in living up to his own words. Quote, Every man must accept existence cheerfully under the condition on which it has been granted to him. End quote. Footnote boswell's life of johnson footnote. in conquering himself think of the herculean task of that dictionary of the stern stubborn conscientious labor involved in it labor quadrupled by the difficulties under which it was produced look at those voluminous writings filling twelve volumes octavo in which you will not find one careless or slovenly sentence and notice how he kept all his gloomy thoughts to himself they merely peeped out in the confidence of private intimacy no complaining no tedious arraignments of the scheme of things brackets. sir he once said i hate a complainer in brackets. No standing in the middle of the road and cursing at large, but wholesome, manly, cheerful talk with sound advice and a god speed you for every one who deserved it. Very rough sometimes, irritable and overbearing, not suffering fools gladly or at all enduring shams, but as Goldsmith said, with nothing of the bear but his skin, and never bearing hardly on the weak and defenceless with most men the difficulties with which johnson had to struggle disease sorrow poverty fortunes injustices and tardy recognition the stinted wage are hardening influences but the only effect they had on that large and tender heart was to make it larger and tenderer still his generous humanity to the distressed says boswell was almost beyond belief A large part of his income he gave away in charity his very house he turned into an asylum for the maimed and halt. and who does not know what macaulay calls that strange menagerie of his in bolt court he was excellent in all the relations of life he was an affectionate and dutiful son a faithful and tender husband what he could have been as a father we may judge by his conduct to the children of others as a citizen he discharged punctiliously all his duties he heartily and loyally supported that party in politics to which he attached himself and which he believed to be in the right when the government tried to corrupt him pauper though he was he sternly showed his emissary the door his religious duties he scrupulously fulfilled publicly and privately To his many friends he was helpful and loyal, and they rewarded him with an affection such as few men have inspired. Of his conduct to his fellow citizens generally, we need no further testimony than what he did for Dr. Dodd and what Goldsmith said of him, that to be miserable was to have a natural claim on Johnson. And now let us briefly review the career of our hero before we come to the most important part of our subject his wit and wisdom his life falls naturally between two eras from 1709 to his getting his pension and meeting with boswell in seventeen sixty two three and from that point to his death in seventeen eighty four we may call the first johnson as a writer because he then produced by far the greater portion of his literary works, and all the most important ones, except the Lives of the Poets. And the second we may call Johnson as a talker, because, as he had now got his pension, he was relieved from what he always regarded as simply drudgery literary composition. I should have thought, a lady once said to him, that as you write so well writing must be in itself a pleasure for you do you think madame he replied leander used to swim the Helenspont for the mere pleasure of swimming no man but a blockhead writes except for money he was born at lickfield on the 18th of september 1709 his father michael johnson was a native of derbyshire who married sarah ford both being well advanced in years when they married they had two children both sons of whom samuel was the elder in her ninetieth year samuel johnson thus writes to his mother dear honoured mother neither your condition nor your character make it fit for me to say much you have been the best mother and i believe the best woman in the world i thank you for your indulgence to me and beg forgiveness of all that i have done ill and all that i have omitted to do well footnote boswell's life of johnson End footnote. in due time after a rather severe experience of schoolmasters who as he said whipped him very well without which as he owned he should have done nothing he went up to pembroke college oxford poverty made it necessary for him to leave without a degree soon after this his father having died leaving him twenty guineas he became an usher at market bosworth school but he found this employment so intolerable that he relinquished it and made his way to birmingham where he completed his first prose work a translation of father lolo's voyage to abyssinia the next scene is his meeting with mrs porter who confided to him that there was one objection to their match and that was that she had had an uncle who was hanged oh that said her lover is of no consequence for i have two who deserved to be hanged next followed an unsuccessful attempt at schoolmastering at ediel near lickfield the advertisement may still be read at ediel near lickfield in stratfordshire young gentlemen are boarded and taught the latin and greek languages by samuel johnson footnote boswell's life of johnson End footnote. however only three pupils presented themselves david garrick his brother peter and mr Oferley. so he determined to push his fortunes in london and the year seventeen thirty seven saw him with garrick in the city which was destined to ring with their fame many years afterward when they were famous men dining at some great house in london The year seventeen thirty-seven was mentioned. Ah, said Johnson to Garrick's snobbish horror, that was the year when I came to London with two pence halfpenny in my pocket. Eh? What, sir? said Garrick, at Johnson's legs. Eh? What do you say? With two pence halfpenny in your pocket? Why, yes, continued Johnson, when I came with two pence halfpenny in my pocket, and thou, Davy, with three pence in thine. Footnote: Boswell's Life of Johnson. End footnote. On betaking himself to a publisher, one Wilcox, and telling him that he wished to take to literature, Wilcox, eyeing the young man's sturdy frame and broad shoulders, said, "You had better buy a porter's knot," and it was sensible advice. He arrived in london at a terrible time for authors by profession at the very worst time known in our literary history his london was published in may 1738 appearing on the same morning as pope's satire 1738 so that england had at once its juvenile and horace his life of richard savage appeared in 1744 in seventeen forty seven his proposal for the dictionary was announced the plan being addressed to lord chesterfield the vanity of human wishes which may be called the noblest moral poem extant, appeared in seventeen forty nine then came his tragedy irene which was not produced without a violent dispute between the author and garrick then manager of drury lane theatre About certain changes, Johnson remarked on this, "Sir, the fellow wants me to make Mohammed run mad, that he may have an opportunity of tossing his hands and kicking his heels." Footnote: Boswell's Life of Johnson. End footnote. The first issue of the Rambler was published on the twentieth of March, seventeen fifty, and was continued till seventeen fifty-two in the latter year his wife died she had not been a good wife to him by general consent she seems to have been quite without any charm vulgar coarse and selfish yet he wreathed her living and dead with romantic sentiment her memory was an open wound all his life and he never once we are told referred to her without tears in his eyes two years afterwards appeared the great dictionary but he made nothing by it. All the profits had been exhausted. I am sorry, said Boswell. You did not get more for your dictionary. I am sorry, too, he replied, but it was very well. The booksellers are generous, liberal-minded men. Footnote. Boswell's Life of Johnson. End footnote. Very generous and liberal-minded when they made fortunes out of it not one penny of which came to johnson so on went this cruel drudgery in march 1759 he wrote rasselas to defray the expenses of his beloved mother's funeral and to pay some small debts she had left now came a great change for him in 1762 he was granted a pension which he accepted it is of interest to remark that in his dictionary he had defined a pension as an allowance made to any one without an equivalent. In England it is generally understood to mean pay given to a state hireling for treason to his country. Less than a year afterwards he first met Boswell. Let Boswell tell the story. On Monday, 16th of May, 1763, when I was sitting in Mr. Davies' back parlor after having drunk tea with him and Mrs. Davies, Johnson unexpectedly came into the shop, and Mr. Davies, having perceived him through the glass door in the room in which we were sitting, advancing towards us, he announced his awful approach to me somewhat in the manner of an actor in the part of Horatio when he addresses Hamlet on the appearance of his father's ghost look my lord it comes mr davies mentioned my name and respectfully introduced me to him i was much agitated and recollecting his prejudice against the scotch i said to davies don't tell him where i come from from scotland cried davies roguishly mr johnson i do indeed come from scotland but i can't help it That, sir, is what I find a great many of your countrymen cannot help. Footnote. Boswell. Life of Johnson. Footnote. So commenced that memorable friendship, which was to make one of them immortal, to add another title to immortality to the other, and to confer on mankind a greater boon than any other friendship in the world has conferred The principal incidents in johnson's life between the meeting with boswell and his death in 1784 may be briefly summarized his time was principally passed in visiting his friends in seeing the world in social recreation the constant attempt as he called it to escape from himself in kindly and charitable actions and in talking as no mortal has ever talked since socrates one of his spheres was the literary club founded in seventeen sixty four and here he was king and over what subjects burke gibbon reynolds goldsmith garrick the whartons fox dr percy the flower of the literature and fashion of those times they met at the turk's head in gerard street soho one evening in every week at seven two any time in 1765 he made the acquaintance of the thrales and he soon had an apartment at the brewery in Southwark, and an apartment at their pleasant villa in sheatham then there was that strange home of his in fleet street comprised of mrs anna williams blind and poor and with a temper we are told marked with a welch fire miss polly desmoulins poverty-stricken destitute damsel whose family he had known in stratfordshire another destitute damsel named miss carmichael and an old semi-quack doctor named Lavette, frank a negro servant whom he had rescued from the press gang all of whom lived on his charity and worried his life out for he says in one of his letters williams hates everybody Levitt hates Desmoulins, and does not love Williams. Desmoulins hates them both. Paul loves none of them. Paul, it may be observed, was particularly trying. I took to Paul, he said to Mrs. Thrale, very well at first, but she won't do upon a near examination. We could spare her very well from us. Paul is a stupid slut i had some hopes of her at first but when i talked to her tightly and closely i could make nothing of her she was wiggle-waggle and i could never persuade her to be categorical footnote boswell's life of johnson for both quotes however though there was much malice as he says in another letter there was no mischief and so they managed to rub on together Another of his haunts was the Mitre, to which he used to make his escape when feud waxed uncomfortably warm at home. A tour of the Hebrides in 1773, which produced two delightful works, one by himself and one by Boswell, a visit to Paris, a visit to Wales, and various jaunts to different places in England diversified his own life in 1775 the university of oxford conferred on him the title by which we all know him the title of doctor his literary works during this period were an edition of shakespeare which has certainly not added to his reputation a few political pamphlets all on the high tory and wrong side and the best of his prose works the immortal lives of the poet In 1783 came the signal that his days on earth were numbered, and it is gratifying to know that when this truly great and good man was actually in the presence of the dread power, whom he had always regarded with so much terror and horror, he became perfectly tranquil and resigned. His last articulate words were, like those of Sir Walter Scott, a blessing. God bless you, my dear and so on the evening of the thirteenth of december seventeen eighty four dr johnson ceased to be mortal end of chapter three samuel johnson part one